So for the past 15 years, Leslie and I have done bedtime stories with kids at bedtime. Now we're in the more fun phase of it, like Harry Potter and Narnia and those kind of things. But at first, you know, the first few years, you're reading some books that after a while, you're like, why are we reading this to kids? Like there may be some troubling messages in some of these books. Like, am I the only one concerned that the main character in a very hungry caterpillar might have an eating disorder? Or the five little monkeys jumping on the bed? Why do they keep going back to that same doctor? Second time, it's still the same advice. Stop jumping on the bed. Did this guy not take an oath to help people at some point? Or uh, the giving tree? How many of y'all love the giving tree? Our staff just had Jimmy Cohn read it because we were like, we recognize you in this book. But uh, the giving tree, when you read it to your kids, you're like, what lesson are we teaching them? Basically, you start reading it, you're like, wait, I'm the tree. I'm the tree. I'm the stump now. You know, like, what are we teaching our kids to just use all your parents' resources till eventually they blow all their money and they come back and live with you and crash on your stump? And is it possible to read Dr. Seuss without sounding just a bit drunk? But I can't, t- you know, one of the things that kids remember when they get older, and parents, you need to hear this, the two memories that seem to stick with kids are vacations and bedtime. And you may be interested to know that over the past five years, there's been an increase in a new kind of bedtime story. One minute bedtime stories. And I think about all the times I've like broke down crying reading Narnia to our kids, teaching them about the difference between good and evil and bravery and courage. And I think about what kind of world do we live in where we want to make that moment that's really sacred for parents and kids and reduce it to less time than it takes to cook popcorn. In other words, do you really want this kind of life? A good question to step back and ask is, why are we all in such a hurry to become people we don't even like? So we're concluding our series, Peace of Mind, today, and we're talking about the second biggest thing we said we struggled with as a church, burnout. That may not sound like a mental health issue to you, but according to the CDC and the World Health Organization, it's a really big problem. And in the last few years, it's, it's grown exponentially. And there's a lot of study on this, but let me just tell you, there's a reason I started with one minute bedtime story because our world is accelerating means it's getting faster and faster. And there's a lot of reasons for that. Our modern drive for efficiency technology, there's a lot of philosophy behind it, but very few of us are stepping back and making hard choices. Instead, we're going along with the flow and the flow is not going well. To say it clearly, we as a society are living deeply unwisely and our minds and our bodies are sending up warning flares saying, you weren't meant to live this way. And most historians mark 1310 as the moment that people in the West life began to change. It was a big invention. Want to know what it was? The clock. Before that, historians said that, you know, basically we lived as creative beings. 
So, you know, we go to bed when the sun goes down. We wake up when the sun comes up. In the summers, we have longer, harder days of work. But in the winter, we rest more. We sleep more. But the clock kind of changed all that. All of a sudden, we start prioritizing efficiency and those kind of things. And efficiency is not bad, but it's not a god, even though we sometimes treat it like that. We became more efficient and a lot more machine-like and less human being. Here's the way one historian says it. Here was man, the invention of the clock was man's invention or declaration of independence from the sun. New proof of his mastery over himself and his surroundings. Only, only later would it be revealed, and by the way, your lives are revealing it, that this mastery, we accomplish this mastery by putting ourselves under the dominion of a machine with demands all its own. There's a couple of um, people who wrote a book called The Time Cure. And in that book, they talk about what is known as hurry sickness. And hurry sickness, they just give a few, they give lots of examples. I just want to give you a few examples of hurry sickness. One is when you're in the grocery store and you go to check out and you look at the lines and what are you looking for? The shortest line. When you're driving on the road with several lanes, you come to a stoplight. What are you looking for as you're approaching? Shortest amount of lines of cars, right? Here's another example of hurry sickness. When you're multitasking and you forget one of the tasks. And I tell you those examples of hurry sickness because most of us wouldn't think that's a sickness. We think that's normal. Because the way we live is abnormal and we're thinking it's not. So... For those of you who grew up in the 50s, you'll appreciate this. There's a video of, from I Love Lucy, Lucy and Ethel. Y'all know this video, right? How many of y'all have seen this video? They're having to wrap chocolates. Uh, the owner comes in and tells them, listen, you're going to lose your job if one of those chocolates gets by you without getting wrapped. Then the assembly line starts, and then slowly it starts going faster. And so they keep trying to wrap it. They know they're going to lose their job if they don't get And then right now they start having, as it gets faster, they start putting chocolates everywhere. Very unhygienic scene. But I like this scene a lot because existentially, this is actually a really profound thing. This started back, you know, well, back in 1310. But in the 1950s, people were feeling this before the iPhone. As life just got, the dial on life just keeps getting, it's so hard to preach with this in the background. <laughs> but does this not feel like your life? The dial just gets turned up slowly. How do you cook a frog? You boil it. One degree. Thank you for that. Somebody said, get a pan. That's right. That's, that's, that's recipe step number one. That's true. But this is our life. Do you want it to be? It doesn't have to be. But it does involve making hard choices. If you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Kings chapter 19. Since we are not the first people to struggle with this, I do think it can be helpful to tap into ancient wisdom because we don't have to live like this. So in the story today, there's this character in your Bible, and there's very few people more significant in the Bible than the prophet Elijah. He shows up in 1 Kings 17. All of Israel was worshiping a false god. False gods come and go. Their names change. Uh, today, we don't think we live in that kind of world, but 
you know, show me what you're anxious about. I can show you some of your anxieties. Or I can show you some of your, <laughs> that's redundant, your idols. You guys are going to sit there making me think I'm profound. Come on. You can talk back. Uh, yeah, I can show you some of your idolatries. But in that day, their idol was Baal. They worshiped him. He was the rain god. And so God raises up Elijah. And the first thing Elijah does is take away their rain. Like, okay, do you want Baal to provide rain for you? Ask him. And there's no rain for three years. He stands against Ahab, King Ahab, who has introduced Baal worship to Israel. And for years, he's in the wilderness having to hide so Ahab doesn't kill him. And finally, God comes to him and says, all right, go and challenge the Israelites, the, the leaders of Israel and their prophets of Baal. Challenge them to a, like an Old Testament cage match. So they're up on a mountain and there's 450 prophets of Baal versus Elijah. And Elijah's like, this seems like a mismatch. Why don't y'all go first? So the, the scene is this. They each get a, a livestock and they each call on their particular God, Baal or Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They call on them to send fire. And the prophets of Baal for hours, they're cutting themselves. They're banging on drums. They're crying out, using all the prayers. And guess what? Nothing. No fire. And Elijah's so snarky here. In the actual Hebrew, he's like, well, I don't know, maybe Baal's using the potty. That's how he talks about it. He's so funny. It's great. And then after they go for hours, Elijah basically clears his throat and is like, God, why don't you do your thing? And fire falls down from heaven. And it seems like all of Israel has realized, oh, there's only one God and we were worshiping the wrong one. And so they start to attack the prophets of Baal. Everything seems great, except it's not. Because in the very next chapter, this is what happens. In verse 1. When Ahab tells his wife, Queen Jezebel, everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword, Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make you like your life like one of them. Elijah, who just saw fire fall from heaven, was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there while he, went in, while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. He came to a broom bush, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. I am very grateful that God knows which prayers of mine not to answer. You know, up until this point, God has answered every single request of Elijah. Stop the rain, God. Rain stops. Send the rain. Rain comes. Send fire. Fire. Take my life. Nope. How did Elijah get here? How did he go from calling down fire to losing his fire? How does he go from the great I am to I quit? You know what it looks to me, step one, he's been alone for the last three years. He's in isolation. It, it is hard to live a healthy life. It's impossible to live a healthy life alone. No one can stay mentally and spiritually healthy without connection. Jesus refused to do this. Jesus lived in community. Another thing I see here is Elijah's got 
unmet expectation. I mean, think about this. You know what he thinks is going to happen? What he thinks is going to happen is Israel's going to wake up, realize we've been worshiping the wrong God, so we better return to the God who saved us. But all those people on that literal mountaintop experience, afterwards they just go back home and get their bell idols back out. And his exhilaration turns to exhaustion. And that's probably happened in your life too. You think once you get that dream job, everything's going to be good. And the dream job turns out not so dreamy. You think once you have kids, it's all going to be good. And then you find out maybe you can't have kids. Or you think once you have, you know, your perfect family. And then you, what you get is your family. <laughs> Don't laugh too loud. <laughs> they might be here, right? <laughs> Nobody gets the life we really wanted. We get the life we got. And there's another thing I see here. Elisha, all the meaning of his life got taken away. I mean, do you see this? Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. What well, he's saying, what's the point? How has my life mattered at all? The absence of purpose always fuels despair. So um, psychologists actually have a word for this. And the word, it, it doesn't sound like it's such a big deal, but it's a very big deal. It's called mattering. Like just your life matters. I, I talked last week about that phenomenal book by Viktor Frankl called Man's Search for Meaning. And basically how you need to find a mattering that's grounded in something bigger than just circumstances. Because a lot of life is spent in places where it's hard to discern the why. But, as we'll see, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is willing to meet us where we are. Not just where we wish we were. So God meets Elijah with a strategy for his health and restoration. Starting in verse 5. It says... All at once, then he lay down under a bush and fell asleep. And all at once an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. He looked around and there by his head was some baked bread over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, get up and eat for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank. Strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. There he went into a cave and spent the night. And if you grew up in church, you've heard this part of the story before because God is going to reveal himself to Elijah and in surprising ways. He's going to reveal his, his presence to Elijah. He's going to uh, come, he's going to show up a few different manifestations of his presence. And finally, he's going to show up the most in a whisper. And then in verse 14, we see this. God asks, what are you doing here, Elijah? And he says, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, your prophets put to death with the sword, and I am the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. In other words, it hasn't worked. This has been hard and purposeless. And the Lord said to him, 
Go back the way you came and go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Hazel, king over Aram. Also anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, king over Israel. And anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, from Abel, Mahola, to succeed you as a prophet. And then in verse 18, you are not alone, Elijah. I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal and whose mouths have not kissed him. Here's what I want you to see. God does not give Elijah a lecture. He gives him perspective and a sense of purpose. Because God doesn't know, just know how to send fire from heaven. He also knows how to start fire in the hearts of those who are burnt out. Look, stress is part of being human, right? It's unavoidable. But burnout is avoidable. And what I want you to see is God does not tell Elijah, like, get up and pray. You know what he tells him? Get up and eat. And then go back to sleep. Elijah didn't need rebuking. He needed refreshment. He was exhausted. And so what God does is take care of his physical needs so he can receive some spiritual direction. This is Jesus 101. Okay, so there's this time in the Gospel of Mark, in Mark chapter 6, um, the apostles, Jesus sent them off. He's trying to apprentice them to teach them how to do ministry like he's doing ministry. And they come back and they're so excited, right? And Jesus, they're telling him all the stuff they didn't taught. And Jesus says, we got to get away. He says, let us go off by ourselves to a quiet place and rest a while. He said this in Mark 6, 30 to 31, because there were so many people coming and going. And Jesus knew his disciples didn't have time to eat. You may think not having time to eat is some kind of uh, symbol of prestige. Jesus thinks it's a warning symbol. He is, and by the way, it's not that they're not doing good stuff. They're doing great stuff. They're doing ministry the way Jesus was doing it. But Jesus knows we cannot separate our physical health from our spiritual and mental health. Just not getting enough sleep keeps you for, your brain from making serotonin and other chemicals that are important for your mental well-being. So here's the question. We sing it's well with our soul. Is it? Is it well with your soul? Are we sleeping and eating well? There is a reason that this surge in mental health stuff is happening. It's because that assembly line keeps, the dial keeps getting turned up. And what is happening is basically our minds and our bodies flare going off saying, we stop accepting as normal something that is abnormal. Nothing will change until the important becomes more important than the urgent. We have to, Go on a fast from going fast. Because the only cure for an unsustainable pace is a sustainable pace. And that means that we're going to have to make hard choices as individuals and as a church. So here are some of the things I want to encourage you, because I care about you, to think about. You need to sleep more. You need to eat better. You need to get off screens a lot. Or at least get off screens more than you're on screens. And that sounds like maybe impossible to some of us. That's, I mean, this is like a very low bar. Go outside. Spend more time with people. 
Make space every week in your life for Sabbath. You've heard me talk about that a lot. That has saved my soul over the past 15 years. Because, and this is the way my mentor Rick Ashley says it. When you pace your race, you make space to hear God whisper. Let's all say that together. When you pace your race, you make space to hear God whisper. Make community a priority. So do you see what Elijah thinks? Two false assumptions. One, he thinks he's all alone and that he has to do it all alone. And God gives him perspective. Elijah, you've never been alone. You're not the only one left. There's 7,000 other people. Why is he saying this to Elijah? Because God never made a single human being to be self-sufficient. And for the rest of Elijah's life, he is never alone. He's always got Elisha and those other people that God immediately responds with. He, he kept company with other prophets and he had an apprentice for the rest of his life. This is how Jesus lived. He, he doesn't come to earth. God in the flesh does not come to earth and be like, all right, let me just shazam everything, make it right. No, he lives in deep community with other people, 12, 72, 120. And he even allowed someone else to help him carry his own cross. One of the passages we've looked at every week in this short series has been Galatians. This may be what Paul was referring to when he said, this is what we're doing together as Christian community. Share each other's burdens and in this way, obey the law of Christ. It means having real community, not artificial community. If you're to ask most uh, people these days, if they have friends, after a while they'd start saying, well, you know, I have 3,000 friends on Facebook. Or I have 2,000 people following me on Insta. Here's the mistake we make in our modern world. We confuse information about people with relationships with people. With real, true, knowing people. A post will never replace a presence. And God never intended you to be the only person who takes care of you. And the second thing I I see here is Elijah thought he was the only person doing it. I can relate to this. I got a little recovering controlaholic in me. I think one one of the ways out of burnout is to let God take back over his throne. Because the truth is, you never had a throne. I never did. I struggle with thinking everything depends on me, that it's my responsibility to fix uh, you know, everything that's wrong. And if I could just plan it enough, if I could just get out ahead of it enough. But that's an exhausting way to live because, and see if this isn't true, the universe refuses to recognize my sovereignty. Has that been true in your case? We have to be like Elijah. We have to find a place where God becomes bigger and I become smaller. I like the way one psalm says this. The Lord has made the heavens his throne. We don't have a throne. God has a throne and he rules from everything. Some of us are wearing ourselves out trying to do God's job. You know what keeps me exhausted? You guys, people, (laughs) right? You just won't do things the way you ought to do them. Now, that's funny, but how many of us can admit 
we're burnt out because someone in your life, someone you love, just won't let you fix them. <laughs> right? Don't look at them right now if they're here. But, and this is the thing. You're a human. You're a creature. You're created. You're not God. And if you try, if you try to control outcomes, you're inviting so much anxiety and stress into your life. Because we don't own a throne. All you can control is your commitment to love God and love people. And that's all God asks. And there will be moments in this life of following Jesus where you will not be able to see the why at the moment. But what you can do is trust that God is always at work and that God is always good. I don't know, have to know exactly how God is working. I don't have to be able to see the end point. I just have to trust and your life will make a difference because God is always at work. God is always good. There are other people God is working through besides you so you can take a nap. I began this sermon with bedtime stories. Let me just do one more. The tortoise and the hare. We got to stop living like rabbits. Because we don't want to get to the end of our life and realize we just skimmed over it. And we never really lived. The only one who actually had a throne left it and lived among us the best life that has ever been lived. And in that life, there is a certain rhythm to life that I encourage you to emulate. In the Gospel of Luke, nine different times in just a couple of chapters, Jesus withdraws to a quiet place. He's aware that the creator of everything, as becoming one of us, has now embraced limitations. Turns out, the only person in human history who didn't have a Messiah complex was the Messiah. And the busier... And the more pressure and social kind of pressure he got, the more he withdrew. He found a refuge that could never be shaken. Early on in the gospel, in his ministry, Jesus goes to the wilderness for a month and a half. He comes back and does a full day of ministry in Capernaum. And then immediately goes back to the quiet place. The great African theologian St. Augustine said, Do you know that entering into silence is entering into joy? You might have to experience it a few times before you realize what he's talking about, but I have experienced it, and it's really there. The silence isn't empty. It's full. It's full of the presence of God. So, look, I don't know what your quiet place looks like. It could be, you know, early in the morning before everybody's awake. It can be, uh, you know... A reading nook at home. It can, it can be a park down the street. I don't know what it looks like. But enter into a quiet place with God. That's what Jesus means with those words like abide. Or, or um, it, it means home. Come home. Come follow Jesus into that. There's a, a time in the Gospels where Jesus is getting really popular. And the disciples are like, Jesus, everybody's looking for you. This is the moment to strike, Jesus. Like, you know, you're trending. Let's go visit them. Let's go, you know, spend time with people. And Jesus says, we got to go somewhere else. 
I've come to preach the good news of the kingdom of God. Here's the thing. What Jesus was doing at the time was life. It was saving lives. It was saving souls. It's great stuff. And Jesus says, I, I came to preach the kingdom of God. That's Jesus for no. I'm not going to do what you're saying to do. I almost titled this sermon, Jesus Took Naps, Follow Jesus. He knew his limits and he knew when to rest and when to say no. As I see it, you know, a sermon's not going to fix. But changing habits will. As I see it, I think we have two options. Option one, we neglect this, make excuses, we get sucked into the rat race, and eventually we face emotional unhealth at best and spiritual oblivion at worst. Or B, we recapture this. We say no to the society that we're living in. We slow down our lives. We start taking breaks. We learn Sabbath. We get off our screen so much. We enjoy God's good world and the good bodies God gave us. And we enjoy the life God actually gave us to live. And if we do that, we will become healthy people in an unhealthy world. We will become some of the few people in the world who find what the New Testament actually promises. Peace of mind.